0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse.
1: I'm Luke. And I'm Eric. Today we're talking about metaphor in science fiction and fantasy. Cool.
2: Cool. Now, I'll just like to now say, what does that mean exactly?
0: Yeah, I was I going to say, I
1: I,
2: Jesse said, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And I'm like, yes. And then I was like, what's it about? And he, and he told me what it's about, metaphor and science fiction and fantasy. And I wasn't quite sure what was going to do that. So this is this was just a jumping in cold for me, and I think maybe Jesse as well. So yep. I've Eric, got
0: some ideas percolating, but really, they're not unformed at this point.
2: Eric's going to give us a good lesson here, hopefully.
1: Well, <laughs> well uh, there, are, there are a lot of things, I think, about metaphor, but uh, I think... Uh, one of the things that I would like to, uh, to throw out for us is that uh, science fiction and fantasy sort of undercuts the traditional idea of metaphor that you learn in school. Um, in, in school, you learn that a metaphor has two parts, a vehicle and a tenor. The vehicle carries the meaning. The tenor is the meaning. So if I say, um, my friend Bill is a giant, if I mean that literally, then he's like 11 feet tall. But if I mean it metaphorically, the word giant is the vehicle and the tenor is that he's very tall. Yeah. Well, um,
0: can you spell tenor for me?
1: Uh, just just like uh, the singing voice. OK. Um,
0: TENOR.
1: Yeah. The, right, like the tenor of a conversation, you know, sort got, of like the, the main it. meaning.: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so that, that analysis, that, which is the sort of traditional analysis of metaphor, is based on the notion that we understand the vehicle because we have real life experience with you know i mean we have an image in our mind of of a giant yeah and we understand the the tenor better or somehow we've got a deeper or more nuanced or specially flavored or more surprising understanding of the tenor than we would have if we had just gotten the tenor if i said my friend bill is very tall That's not as powerful in some way as saying, my friend Bill is a giant. Um, And then you can contrast that with, my friend Bill is an ogre, which would also make him big, but it would have a different feel to it. So the, the choice of vehicle is obviously important, but the implicit notion is that both the vehicle and the tenor are known. But in fantasy and science fiction, we get that all the time with things that are unknown. And for the sake of, of this, uh, at least part of our discussion, if you don't mind, I'm going to use similes as if they were just metaphors. I mean, my friend Bill yeah. is as yeah. tall yeah. as a giant, is, you know, functionally the same thing um, in this particular aspect of it. But you're saying so in, so
2: science fiction, like weaker, weaker in science fiction, in science, sorry, you're, you're breaking up there a bit, Jesse, on Skype.
0: I was, just, I was just trying to say, I think that we can agree that similes are like a sort of a weakened or denuded form of, a metaphor well kind of. it's a metaphor it's just because you've got the like mm. in there it's yeah well,
1: they function metaphorically but i think they do other things as well yeah. they change the rhythm and they change the sense of coincidental existence between the vehicle and the tenor sounds good
2: yeah, yeah. I, I, but you're saying with science fiction or fantasy when you say oh my friend is a giant he could actually be a giant <laughs> He, no, no,
1: that's not what I mean. Oh. Of course, we always could have said that. Um, yeah. Even outside of fantasy and science fiction, I mean, yeah. we have you know, giantism is is a particular okay endocrine maybe an ogre. Disorder. If you said my but friend Dave I'm, is an <laughs> ogre, then right. yeah. But, but I understand what, what I you was mean, thinking. but yeah. I was thinking is something. I think. Uh, I think you're going in the direction I was headed, but I think I'm thinking of something that uh, is more extreme and that is this. I could write a science fiction story. Well, you could, Luke. Um, One of us could write a science fiction story in which we say, I landed on Aldebaran 6 and was astonished to see how beautiful the humanoid females were. They had the elegance of the Venusian catwoman overlaying with the pheromonal music we expect to find only on Jupiter. Yeah. And we don't know what any of that crap means. We've never seen any of those things. So, but, but I guess we co- know co- what it- the words mean and yeah. somehow we've put all that stuff together and we've made this enormous simile. We've built this word picture, but the parts of it, unlike the vehicle and the tenor both being known, the parts of it are unknown.
2: And yet and it somehow seems to Yeah. And somehow exactly. you still get the meaning. You, you like that the, somehow the the tenor becomes known, even if the vehicle is unknown. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Right. And it seems
1: to me that that this is one of the great wonders of fantasy and science fiction that it makes us come to understand things we've never seen before, but. In fact, simultaneously it calls into question what we really think is going on cognitively when we deal with metaphor. Mm. Mm. It's it's not really just we understand the vehicle, we understand the tenor, the vehicle will flavor the tenor. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. Hmm.
2: I mean, this kind of thing has been played with quite a lot in science fiction, explicitly that idea. I remember reading years ago, there was a short story and about these, you know, there was these things and this alien came down and there was these two kids and one of them I remember was called Red and the other one was called... Dave, or something like that, and at the very end, you realise that Red was called his—he was called Red, or his nickname was Red—not because he has red hair, but because he has red tentacles. And the aliens were actually the humans, and the the, the kids that were acting <laughs> like kids. Do you understand what I mean? That the descriptions in your head was always. Um, the, uh, you just presumed they were children, cause, or the, 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 the human children, and they were children, but you just presumed they were human children rather than the aliens and the aliens... Were, so it, it has been played with explicitly in that way that you think oh, yes. you, you think mm-hmm. that's going on. I mean, I, I could probably come up with other examples which I could remember the name of the author and the story, but that was just one the, story that, The one
0: that I liked that's very similar to that is called uh, The Monsters by Robert Sheckley. It's a short story in which we see... Uh, uh alien spacecraft landing on the Earth, and the humans run down the hill to greet it. Yeah, and they run down using their their tails, <laughs> you know. And and the this, this horrible creatures that come out of the uh, spacecraft have mm. four limbs in in a disgusting display, and and they don't they don't understand the relationship between men and women. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Yeah, it has, exactly. It, that kind of thing probably has been done, you know, many times as as short stories. I don't think yeah that could. I don't think that could be kept up over the course of a uh, a novel. I tried it once. I was um, trying to, uh, well, not trying. To, I was writing a um, a retelling of the War of the Worlds, but from a uh, from the point of view of the Martians. Right. And uh, and I was as I started writing, I thought, well, I'll never explicitly say that they're coming from Mars to Earth, and you because know, they don't call it Mars and Earth. They come from you know this other place, and they're going to this you know this other place. And when they're describing humans, I was trying to work out what point I would make it clear to the reader that what story they were reading, even though they would know it straight away, but it became too difficult to keep up that kind of position of ignorance and, you know, trying to explain things from the alien point of view without using any of the metaphors that a human wouldn't understand, only using <laughs> metaphors that the that the alien would understand or the, the right. Martian would understand. And it, it became too difficult uh, just to sustain That's, that was, kind that of that thing. That
0: sounds like a uh, Tolkien-esque task where you have to... Build up an entire language <laughs> first, yeah. and then you know ponder it for a couple decades, and then begin.
1: Yeah. Well, I well, had haven't pondered it enough. With, in uh, in a voyage to Arcturus, uh, David Lindsay's main character in as in each new domain that he um, enters as he. Works his way across this planet. Um, he undergoes a physical change and winds up with different organs of sense perception. Mm. Uh, with each new domain, then he starts talking about the way he's functioning in the world differently because he's using different senses. Or we have uh, Ron Goulart's Dark Universe, where it it's set in a world years after. Uh, humanity has withdrawn to caves uh, because of the radiation uh, unleashed by an atomic war. Generations, in fact, later. And so people are blind. I mean, they just they, they don't know what it means to see. Um, they they echolocate. And the, uh, the community living in the caverns um, always has somebody on a tall tower uh, clicking rocks together. So there's this constant... Um, echo that people can use to get around and, and orient themselves. Uh, eventually, of course, somebody comes out of the cave and the references <laughs> to Plato are obvious, but, but the language um, all changes when hearing becomes what we associate with knowledge rather than sight. I mean, the, there are metaphors that are so deep in our language we don't think of them as metaphorical anymore. When yeah, you say some somebody depth. has insight, or he's a brilliant person, or he is a man of vision, or we think that that's rather an obscure point. Those all those all swirl around the the central notion that light is a metaphorical representation for knowledge. Okay. And to the extent that fire generates light, we see the two sides of knowledge as um, enlightening, right? More light. And potentially self-consuming, as Moses being scared uh, by confronting the burning bush that doesn't consumed, or Saul on the road to Tarsus being blinded by the light and losing his entire personality, and you know when he gets sight back three days later, he becomes Paul. He's yeah. no longer Saul. I mean, so we've got those words. So then we change it in in Goulart's novel, and and it's it's sound, or in. Uh, in Inla- a sound uh, idea. Uh, Sorry, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. exactly. no, no, no,
2: no, no, it isn't because sound is, a, is right? a different thing in that way. Sound, if it's a sound idea, it means it's built, it, it built well, that's rather pres- than.
1: No, 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 that's precisely right, Luke. Really? How it's... do you know that something's a sound idea? I guess you, you knock just, on it, you, you tap on it. Exactly. If it's got
2: that weight, if it's got a heavy, it's like a watch. If a watch is exactly. heavy, you know it's good quality. It's sound. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And in German, and and um, which I don't know very well, but you certainly do. Um, in German, the word for reason is the same as the word for, for the earth, right? I mean, in English, we sometimes use the word grounds for divorce as if it were reasons for divorce. But yeah. ground, grund and grund in German, you, you know, that's the standard word. We see that there's something physical there. You know, you can stand on, I can take my stand on this position. You see how those words are metaphors? You know, I can take my stand. If you say something that I can understand, right? Think of me as being below you and holding you up. If I can understand what you're saying, then I can support your position. I'm kind Holds of circumspect
0: about the whole thing. <laughs> there you go. Exactly.
1: Exactly the point. Yeah. That's exactly the point. So in Star Maker, Olaf Stapledon has his disembodied viewpoint go his first stop. On the so called Other Earth is a place that's got inhabited by creatures that seem to be pretty much like us, and they look sort of like us and everything, but their main sense is taste and touch. And they have a whole new meaning for saying that someone is the salt of the earth, (laughs) you know, and they wear gloves all the time. Because taste and touch are their main senses. They wear gloves all the time in order to avoid being lascivious. And pornography for them is completely different. I mean, this idea of changing senses changes the very language we use because we've got these metaphors in there. And what fantasy and science fiction do is extend that into realms where we don't actually have the direct experience. I mean, you know when when Heinlein says in the door into summer, you know the door dilated closed behind him. Oh, sorry, the door dilated open in front of him. Um, yeah, well, I well, have seen a dilating door?
2: No, no, that's that's the the great opening line to 1984, isn't it? It's sort of like the clock struck thirteen. I think it was, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, when mm-hmm. he, he heard the yep. he heard the clock strike thirteen, and that is, we just need that one detail, and we're like, ah, we are other, we are elsewhere, we are not here. In our time, exactly. in our place, because we you know, clock strikes thirteen, which I guess these days you, I mean, it could be possible, you know, in Europe, twenty-four hour clocks are used a lot more, but you still wouldn't have a clock striking thirteen. Um, you just have it striking one. Um, exactly. Let me, let me bring and you it back. See, to-
1: that's what I mean about the metaphor. When a meta- mm. when you hear a metaphor, a real metaphor, as opposed yeah. to having it attenuated a bit over as a simile, when you hear a real metaphor. You have a kind of simultaneous understanding of the vehicle and the tenor, and you construct a meaning out of it in the hearing. Mm. And when you say the clock struck 13, you construct a meaning out of it out of the hearing. And in that sense, getting us to construct a meaning that we have never seen before, fantasy and science fiction are just qualitatively more invested in this than. More traditional, realistic literature. Okay, can they we take call it, metaphor? Question.
2: Can we take this back a bit? Because as soon as you said someone is um, he has a what well, you said someone is bright or something like that, as soon as you said that, I thought ah, we can talk about Moses here, and then like a sentence later, you brought up Moses and the burning <laughs> bush and all that kind of thing. But to bring it back here, you do get metaphor in this way. Uh, which is, like you say, you can you can bring up a point and use a metaphor, and science fiction does that on purpose. But I think it can often happen by accident. By, um, not accident, but by ignorance. Not even ignorance, what am I trying to say? Just by, uh, like, being in a... It's, science fiction does it on purpose by setting up metaphors which the reader... Isn't familiar with but yet somehow communicates some truth with in the tenor of the metaphor, even if they don't understand the the vehicle. But say something like the Bible or Shakespeare or you know well-known literature from you know centuries or millennia ago, that does the same thing. but with metaphors where the vehicle is unknown, but the, somehow the tenor is, the, it is known as sort of like the tenor has been kept even though the actual original uh, meaning or the original, like say, vehicle is no longer understood. And as the vehicle is, is, has been more and more misunderstood, the tenor has changed over time. So there's lots of examples, especially in Shakespeare, where he uses a word like awful. And he means awful as in that's awfully good, like it's awful, it, it creates awe. And then Correct. nowadays, it's been that is awful, and suddenly you're like, Ugh, like Ugh, you know, and um, uh, I guess there's and uh, th- there's other words which I mean, these are it's just really words.
0: awful pornography. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure.
2: I'm not sure you could do that. But you say about about um, Moses uh, and the burning bush. But one of the uh, one of the things about light is that it, uh, it, when Moses came down from the uh, from the from the uh, the mountain Mount Mount Sinai. Sinai Mount Sinai uh, it, it, they said his face was burning you know his face was b- shining so bright that people couldn't bear to look at it you know and that becomes the glory of the Lord you know he's he's faced God and lived and all that kind of stuff and uh, and then the same thing happens when Jesus comes down from the mountain, you know, transfiguration, and all that kind of stuff. Again, his, his face was shining like the sun. Now, when you say shining like the sun with Jesus, at that time, Jesus was, you know, he is a sun god, a dying and rising saviour, you know, like in the same way that, the, you know, all, all the time the sun goes down in, in, at night and comes back daily, but also with the winter, the, the seasons, cycles of seasons, that in the, in the winter, it gets colder, and then, you know, in the in the winter... You know, he can die, and then in the spring, come back to life. You know, that's what the whole solstice is. But back in Moses, in the time of Moses, not the time of Moses. Actually, that's not the
1: solstice, but... No, it gives us that. But yeah, it's it's, it's, it's that dying, has to do with the descent. It has to do with the descent of the Pleiades and yeah. its reappearance forty days later. But yeah, it's, anyway, it's, it's all
2: that. It's all that same kind of that the same kind of astrological things, which is based on you know on the seasons and all that kind of stuff. So there is that there. Right. But but when Jesus comes has gone through the transfiguration, when he says his face was shining like the sun, it just means that the glory of God was with him. But back in in you know when they're telling stories about Moses and Abraham and all these guys back then. Um, Moses is probably started off as a figure which which was a sun deity. And there's lots of other figures in the Old Testament, which probably were for various tribes and various ethnic groups that they were. That was the main sun god for that deity. Um, uh, and it, this happens, you know, time and time and time throughout the uh, uh throughout the throughout the old testament like samson in one language actually means sun i can't remember what the language is but it's a you know one of those uh, languages samson means sun and when you get like a hairy figure it means that they are you know sun and if they're bald it means that they're lunar uh, you know the, the 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 rays of the sun can be you know hairy is is like the hair and the uh and the moon is is shiny you know so you get like uh um Lots, lots of these different figures where you get some guys who are bald and some guys who are hairy. And the hairy ones aren't just, you know, they're not just called they shine like the sun or they were like the sun. But actually at the time when those stories were first being passed around, they really were the sun. They were the embodiment of the sun on, on the earth. But as time has gone past, you know, as time has gone past those things which they were looking at more as a science fiction fantasy kind of thing, or well, not even science fiction, but like a, a mythic kind of thing has, has now been turned around. And, and you just say the, you know, the the the, the light, you know, the, the face was shining like the sun. It's like, oh, yeah, it means God. It's like, no, really, <laughs> they were shining like the sun because that's what they were, you know. Um, so I, I there's, agree. There's it, lots of a little li-
1: earlier in Genesis. Uh, uh, a little, uh, sorry, in Exodus. Uh, no, Genesis. Anyway, a little earlier than his face, he comes down. As his face was shining like the sun. He goes up there to have a conversation with God and says, uh, "You know, I, I want. You know, I, I've been doing your work, and I, I'd like to meet you face to face." And God says, "No man may look upon my face and live." Hmm. So I will put you in a cleft of the rock and hold my hand before your eyes, and as I pass by, you may look upon my hind parts. That's <laughs> really quite... Well, no, you know, hard. you laugh at that. I
0: know, I just think it's funny. Yeah,
1: well, can. there are two, two things about that that are useful for fantasy and science fiction, at least two. One is this notion that the, what, what you're talking about, Luke, the, the light of God is not just metaphorical light. It's an actual light, and it is overpowering light. Right mm. And that's and so that if you if you read the Old Testament in order, um when it says, you know his face was shining, um, you've got that other referent there there was an actual negotiation uh, between Moses and God um because of the the power of the glory, right, the light. Mm. The second thing is in uh, childhood's end, when Ricky Stormgren wants to see. Corellin the overlord with whom he's been working for all these years uh, before yeah before uh, they Kerelin become known leaves yeah. The Earth. yeah exactly um Corellin um, who clearly knows everything allows Ricky to come up to the satellite and to meet him and Ricky has has cleverly sequestered a flashlight with him as if Corellin wouldn't have a way of knowing that he had a flashlight with him yeah. and Corellin on the other side of the screen, which is supposedly a one-way mirror, gets up to leave, and quickly Karel and Ricky turns on the flashlight and can just see this huge figure and see his hind parts as he goes away. And I'm sure that Clark is letting us know that the Overlord has planned to take the role of God and is, in fact, in that sense... Evil by usurping God's role because he knows our human mythology. He knows. Yeah. He knows our Bible. Well, he d- so, he
2: has to know it because that's the whole big plot point at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the book. Spoiler oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So uh, this idea about the light and seeing it and sun and so on. I, you're completely right, and it runs all through the stuff. And I think you're also right that the metaphors cease to be understood consciously as metaphors. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they get so so unconscious that. They become other words, and those words can then change their meanings, as with awful or support or understand. But sometimes it's just that the the metaphor has fallen just a little bit below our consciousness, and the writer can revive it. So, uh, uh, for example, uh, Mary Shelley has Victor call the monster by about six names. I mean, he never has an actual name-name, you know, a proper noun. But he calls him monster, miserable, wretch, Creature. fiend, enemy, what?
0: Creature.
1: Isn't Creature, it? Yeah. exactly. And if you take a look at what each of those words mean, right, wretch, for example, means exile in Old English. That's where the word comes from. All right, well, the whole point of that poor being is that he has no community. He starts out as nature's nobleman, right? He's a, a romantic savage. He really is good. And he becomes bad because he has no community. He's exiled, miserable. You know, he's worthy of pity. Creature, he's the made thing, right? I mean, monster comes from Latin words for warning. Um, you know, If you, you look at what those words are, and even if you don't know the what they come from, if you don't understand that, the word wretched is really a metaphoric use of a physical condition, exile. Um, even if you don't know that, somehow the language still makes us feel it enough yeah. that it gets carried along. So the metaphor has just fallen a little bit below the surface.
0: All right, yeah. Let's go back to uh, your original example, the Aldebaran six-cat woman that's <laughs> like a Venusian, right? Yeah. So... I would say even uh, there's, there's when I, use, you know, I do talk to younger students than, than you do, but when I use science fiction in my class classes, I, there's some levels of science fiction where I don't like, there's some kinds of science fiction I can't use because they just haven't read enough science fiction to know how to, uh, <laughs> draw out as much as it, as is in there. But there's yeah. And and it almost is about how old it is in terms of like the older the science fiction it is that I give them, the more likely they are to be able to draw out most of what's in there, yeah. because I've had this giant vocabulary built up. So for me, Catwoman's no problem, right? I've I've seen Batman <laughs> and there's a Catwoman in there. Uh, Venusian, I know what the planet Venus is, and I also know uh, you know that there's this goddess named Venus and. Um, you combine those two things, and I think uh, these are voluptuous sex objects. Well, of course, right? because it's
2: like the whole men are from Mars women are from Venus. It's it's. Sure. You say Venus, and you immediately think naked women. You don't think warlike men. You know, <laughs> is that's the that's the way it goes. But I understand what you mean about building up vocabulary. There's a, a book called Halting States, I think it's called, by Charles Strauss. and in he there he's playing with the reader's I could knowledge. Never, I
0: could never give. Yeah. That to my students because no. they're just well read enough. No,
2: because right? I mean, in there, we, I think we're talking before we started this podcast about the uh, the the language, uh, the opening line of um, of Neuromancer, and about uh, Eric. Give, give us that one. What's what's the original line? It goes uh, the sky above the, what,
1: the sky above the port was the color of a television tuned to a dead channel.
2: Yeah, but in um, in halting state, he actually says the TV was the ah oh, the TV. Uh, I can't remember what it's like. The TV screen looks like the sky over a Japanese port or something like that. He actually flips it <laughs> on his head and he t- and if you read that line you'd be like, why is he saying that the TV looked like uh, the sky over a Japanese the night sky over a Japanese port? And if you read that, you're just like, Oh yeah, it's Neuromancer." So you could just go on and get the
0: Well that's and- that's not a that's actually not a metaphor though. That's an illusion. And isn't, an, there- but
2: it, it but the original line the original line with, yeah. which is like the TV screen... No, what was it? The, the, the sky looked like a, a TV tuned to a dead channel. That is, you know, that's a... Well, I guess it's a simile. It looked like it. It wasn't it, but it looked like it. But then the same...
1: You can push this further, Luke. You're, you, I'm on your side here, man. The yeah. word dead is itself yeah. a metaphor oh, in yes, both, both Gibson's <laughs> sentence and Strauss's sentence.
2: Well, Strauss didn't actually right? say it was dead. He said it, it looks like the sky over a, a port. You know, So I understand oh, both oh, ways, but, but no, no, uh, it's good. But he's, he does that lots and lots throughout that book, uh, lots of these different references. And I know I probably only got a quarter of the references that were in the book, but I think it was fun that he was – it's like he was relying on the reader's knowledge of science fiction to enjoy – the the book to its fullest potential you know th- and there's lots of references that i only got when i was sort of like thinking back over and i was like oh yeah he mentioned um because uh, it, it's a it's a book about games as well about people playing games and one of them things says oh it, it, he went down a uh, a passage there was lots of wriggly passages all alike or something i can't remember the exact reference but that's from a famous text only like a text adventure where you would keep going down these passages and you'd get lost. And every time you went in there, the words would be changed around. So sometimes it was like, went down lots of passages all alike, wriggly, or you know, it would swap around the words and there was like four or five, no, probably 10 or 12 different iterations of this sentence using the same words, you know, uh, but with these wriggly passages all alike. And he put that in there and it was only like after I'd read it and went back, you know, went back a thought back of it. And I was like, oh, I recognize where that comes. From. I can't remember the original game now. I just re- recognized the reference. Um, but yeah, he was doing that all the way through and it relies on a knowledgeable uh, knowledgeable reader in the same way that I just, I just looked this up here. Another thing from the Bible, Genesis five twenty something, 20. um and methuselah no not Methuselah. Well, no i'm too far on enoch let's do enoch yeah so enoch lived 6 uh, 60 and 5 years but get methuselah and then it goes uh and the uh, and the days of enoch were, num- were numbered 365 years and you're like okay 365 years why, what's 365 years? Well, that's obviously 365 days, which is a reference to the sun. Enoch was a son and he didn't even die. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. It, it's like, he didn't even die at the end of 365 years. And that's why he pops up later in the Bible as well. And, and that's now we look at that. Oh, it's a reference to this, but 365, most people reading Genesis wouldn't even, maybe they'd pick up and go 365, where do I know that from? Ah. But they wouldn't realize that it's, what it's blatantly doing is saying Enoch was once a sun god. Um and yeah, you can you can read more about that elsewhere. But it's there. It's definitely there if you know where to look
0: for it. You you brought up uh video games, and this is actually what the only th- thing that I was thinking about to bring to the table on this topic when it was scheduled was I I started thinking about this after reading that that first few lines of uh Tower of Babel by, by Ted Jiang and uh what it made me think of is this idea that i've had for a long time that about the relationship between computerized worlds as in worlds that are a simulation of reality in some small sense and s- s- fiction in between the pages of a book so in science fiction we are getting a a map of a, a world and What makes it science fiction as opposed to fantasy or mainstream fiction is that it is a world in which there are laws, if it's good science fiction, at work, which are determinable by the occupants in that world, but also by the viewer of that world, us, the readers. And unlike uh, worlds like uh, a general fiction book, where it has determinable laws like the world we live in, presumably, or perhaps slightly different ones with magic, you know, magic realism or whatever it is, if it's a science fiction book, it is uh, got a boundary under which we can perform experiments in the same way we can perform experiments in uh, ballistics and physics in a computerized world. So, example, when I'm Playing a first-person shooter video game, right? I can jump out of well, not first. Most there is a game called I play play called Battlefield 2, in which you can jump out of airplanes and land on buildings. This is all physics. There's no, it's all generated within the game. There's no scripting. It's it's not pre-scripted. In books that are science fiction, you've got a boundary created by the author, to which there can be discoverable boundaries. And if it's good science fiction, it teaches us about our world or alternative possibilities that are consistent in the way our world are. And that is like a (laughs) meta-metaphor, I think, for Uh, understanding what science fiction does, as opposed to um, even like horror or fantasy. It's a very sp- special... It has a very special relationship with your understanding of the world, I think. At least a from certain from kind it. of science fiction. It's very hard to get at, but... Uh, it, it strikes me every time, you know... The, the the simulation that is in a world where many players are working together um, and y- using the same... Th- Physics techniques. There's an uh, an unimaginable number of logical but unforeseen events that can be extracted and brought to the real world as value. Uh, I, I,
1: I, if I'm understanding you correctly, my guess is I'm not.
0: I don't. I, it's very but, hard for me to articulate this. So,
1: but. Well,
0: let's hear what you got to say. I'm
1: going to try something, and if if I've missed the mark, huh, Martia, <laughs> um, you know, maybe you can we can do some range finding here. Sure. Um, it seems to me that in the time machine, that is Wells's novel, not the one I have parked in my garage, um, <laughs> in 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 the time machine, in some sense, the Morlocks, um, metaphorically, present the working class, the the managerial or ownership class. Uh, Sorry, the the working class. And the Eloi represent the managerial or owning class. Uh, The idea that ultimately the processes of, that natural processes will create uh, a clear notion that any fool can see that the, managers are useless and the only use they can have in the human race is for the workers to eat them Um, and that this is clearly an undesirable state of things that is knowledge or a position uh, an image that that I would suppose is of use to us both in 1895 and now in 2012 Um, and in that sense The way we think about our world, if we are Wells' contemporary when we read that book in 1895, is affected by reading about the Eloi and the Morlocks. And so in that sense, we have, if I'm following you correctly, um, a set of metaphors, a system, where the characters in the narrative world can figure it out, and the time traveler does, not at first, but eventually. Um, And we, looking on into that world, can come to understand it and realize that it has meta, as you put it, uses for us. I mean, a meta metaphor, a yes. metaphor. Uh, again, the etymology is 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 useful. Metaphor is Greek for carry across, mm-hmm. right? Right. And uh, if you go to Greece and you see a moving van, they say metaphora on on the side of the moving van. Right. It's could carry I just, things across.
2: Could I just yeah, disagree with them. you in one point? I don't think that the alloy the in time machine are the, uh, the managers. I think they're the owners, and th- there's owners and workers. I think the point, well, one of the things that I get out of that is that the managers are actually missing. There isn't a, a manager class. And uh, when our time traveler goes forward, In time, he sort of becomes that intermediary between the two classes in a way that obviously is uh, unsuccessful in a way. But because like he's he's the one like the alloy uh, no sorry the the Morlocks go and take his time machine apart and he's the one who's trying to find it and put it back together again. You know, so he's actually trying to manage their work and he does get it back. You know, he finds it in the statue and things. but, I, yeah, I, I would say that the... I, I'm not disagreeing with the overall point. I would just say that I don't think the alloy are the managing class. I think they're the owners and aristocracy class rather than the I managers. Think I think
1: that's a very smart observation, yeah. Luke. I thank you for it. I have typically thought of them as owners and managers being sort of equivalent in this regard. No, nope. you, owners, your not correction, managers. I think exactly your correction is right on the point. I really appreciate it. In part, it helps explain why it is that Although the Morlocks obviously retain more of the qualities of current-day Homo sapiens that we would recognize as Homo sapien, the time traveler seems to ally himself with the Eloi. He is, you are quite right, he takes the role of manager. He's trying to get done what the owners would want done.
2: Yeah, and he's trying to make the the yes, Morlocks. I think it's a do, get in that get get through to the. He's trying to get them to do their job, and he becomes the manager because they're, they're the two groups have been separated without that mediator between the two.
1: That's an incisive, beautiful point. Thank you.
2: Um, so I had another point, but I said that, and I, I've lost it. So you guys, uh, get what, what's that going on? Oh yeah, so. Uh, I wrote a, a, a book recently um, called Get That Rat Off My Face and it was one of those times, I mean, there's this is lots and lots of different illusions and illusions in there as well, but one point that I bring across quite strongly is that uh, it, and quite blatantly that people even have a conversation, two characters even have a conversation with each other about this in the novel, uh, in the novella, because it's a novella about science fiction as well as it being science fiction so it's very much a meta book and, uh, and it, this one of the ideas that I'm bringing across is that uh, science science fiction is a thought experiment and in the first half of a science fiction novel up until like the say the first two-thirds of a science fiction novel you get all of the rules that you need to to logically work out the end of the story everything i mean if suddenly something is brought about in the last quarter of the book Suddenly, a new rule comes up. You're like, "Wait a second, we—that's—we're not allowed that." And you get that Deus Ex Machina kind of feeling. You're like, "Wait a second, you just introduced a new rule to get them out of that." But if all the rules are there in the first place, and you can, you know, you can use those rules to work out what could happen at the end. You know, you don't know what's going to happen, but logically, the rules already have to be in place before you get to that last quarter of the story where you find out, you know, how everything is resolved, um, and. And I think that's important, that's an important distinction between science fiction and other fiction, is that you can, you know, you get all of those bits and pieces and then you can sort them out. Um, and that's why I think uh, something, someone like, um, uh, what's, what's it, Michael Crichton, he, I don't think he, he uses that in the same way that most science fiction authors do as a thought experiment. He uses science to get people into holes and get people into trouble, and then just uses, Human characteristics, human ingenuity, to get out of that, rather than the rules that he set up in the first half of the book. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but I think that's yeah. that's another kind of meta level of, of of metaphor about this is that science fiction. It's not about science, but it uses like the the logic and techniques of science. It's sort of like we can we're going to co- make a controlled experiment. We're going to make a controlled um, thing here. We got here's all the rules, and now let's play out by those rules and. Uh, and of course, other fiction does that as well. But I think that's one of the defining characteristics of science fiction over others is that you do have this, you know, these kind of uh, an understanding by the readers, even if they don't understand what they're understanding. But if it's, if it's, uh, if the author goes against it, you know, if suddenly in the last 10 pages of the book, you suddenly introduce more facts and more ideas and that, that don't fit in with the rules that you already have, you're like, hey, wait a second, you can't do that. Um, so that's another another point that i just want to bring up
1: let me uh if you uh, this is uh, it will be too much about t- too small a point but it's such a i hope it's it's a very nice uh example of the kinds of things you've just been talking about luke in uh, war with the newts, chopin has um, a the, the premier congrès du rodel the first congress of Eurodel, uh the first uh conference being held on the general species of newts, which are now this huge problem in the world as anyone who 's read the book knows, and um, it happens in Paris, which is why the name of the Congress is in French, as I just said it and the there 's a newspaper report um, about what 's going on uh, now those of you us who have read the book know that um, the newts. Um, call into question all sorts of different aspects of human society. At the beginning, they are like children. Later, they are exploited as labor. Then they become like slaves. At other points, they look like they are racial minorities. And ultimately, they look like fascists uh, at the, in the penultimate section of the book. So the newts have all these different uses as we go through the book. But at the moment of this uh, uh, particular Congress, the first Congress where people are reporting on their studies of newts and so on. The newspaper report says um, that which is included in the book, right? Says that this is the first Congress of the Eurodeal scientists, which is also known as, and it gives some slightly longer name with the word zoologist in it in French. Um, but then, uh, because this is a big deal thing and everybody knows what's going on, it says to the true Parisian, of course, all of these people are simply known as ces zola, meaning if you read the words, those zoologists there. However, the word experimental novel, or I should say the phrase experimental novel, which nowadays we tend to think of as applying to formally um, complicated works like Finnegan's Wake, say, you know, where just the very form of the novel is somehow being played with. Uh, the phrase experimental novel originated to talk about Works like um, Germinal, in which you construct a society and you run a thought experiment and given the rules of the society, what's going to come out of it? Uh, Flatland might be a, about.
0: a nice example of, of that. Indeed,
1: Flatland would be a fine example of it. And and the the, the works, though, originally were not fantastic works like like Abbott's novel, Flatland, but in fact were realistic works, like Germinal, written by Emil Zola. Mm, right. So, in fact, experimental novels in which we try to understand society by constructing the rules and letting them run, just what, Luke, you've been talking about, yeah. that phrase of experimental novel was associated with Emil Zola. So, mm. when Czopek has the newspaper reporter say... To the sophisticated Parisian, of course, those people are say zola that phrase C'est zola in French is exact meaning those zoologists there is homophonous it's exactly the same sound as This is Zola, yeah hmm. this is Emile Zola, and the whole notion that we should be reading War with the Newts as an experimental novel, yeah. Is caught in that allusion, which you can only get if you read that little phrase with your ears Mm. in French, which is not the language in which the book was written.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, but it's all hidden in there. That's what you were talking about. You you start talking about allusion, you talk about experiment. I think all of these things come together. Well, the point is one more little point, and then I'm going to seed the seed seed the airwaves, (laughs) and that is. When you first made an allu- a, t- a reference to an allusion, Jesse, you said, well, but that's an allusion, that's different. And what I would like to say is I do believe that allusion as a rhetorical device is different from metaphor as a rhetorical device in general. But there is an underlying cognitive process that they share. When I say instead of that man is a giant, I say that man is a Samson. Hmm. Yep, I am using allusion and metaphor simultaneously, and so many times when we use allusion, it works not simply because it's a reminder of something, yeah. but because it becomes the vehicle from which we get a new tenor. Now you said yeah. you
2: said Samson there, and I when you said uh, I was expecting Goliath, not Samson, because yeah, Samson's a, a strong man, but I you know when you if you if you're talking biblical giants, you know Goliath is is what you. are I thought you would be... But going, you'd
1: already primed me by making reference to Samson as a God you'd in another primed, language.
2: Yeah, but you'd already primed me by saying giant. So I immediately <laughs> went to Goliath before you got to Samson, is what I was saying. That I was... My, uh, your priming made me go in a different direction than you said Samson. I'm like, oh, I'm getting a different meaning now. I'm thinking someone who is not just a big guy who is like a paid champion, but like a, a guy who's also, you know, a bit of a womanizer... Spreading a seed around, killing people with donkey jawbones. I'm sorry
1: know. to admit it, Luke, but you've successfully pointed out that I'm no longer in my prime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so okay. what? Okay, I want to. I want to. I want to talk, talk about one aspect that I've been thinking about while you guys have been um, filling my head with lots of good thoughts. One of the one of the things I can think of, if science fiction is a uh, is best used as a form of metaphorical understanding of our world, as well as entertainment, but more importantly, something that is useful and that can be drawn out into our world, um, I think that this explains why why I object to certain kinds of quote-unquote science fiction and um, accept uh, badly written science fiction. If it does its metaphorical job properly, no, no, or no, no, it's no, wait a second. I job properly.
2: Let me take a step back. Should science fiction be useful? I mean, should it? I mean, I, 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 I'm taking, I'm taking you to task at that. Maybe I want to read science fiction just as entertainment. I don't think science fiction should change people's lives or change people's minds. I mean, it, it is, it did with me in a way. Reading science fiction. I, I even did a podcast about it. Uh, science fiction and. Personal philosophy, yes, SFBIP I don't, episode.
0: No, the answer to that. I, I, I think that you can't take a judgment on that objectively. You can only be subjective about it. And I think people should read science fiction because it makes them smarter. It makes them. Yeah, it, but it just. And that's a good thing. To bring it back so, to the
2: Bible, I, I was brought up a Christian and I was told that just reading the Bible made you a better person, made you a better Christian, made sure you got to heaven and all that kind of stuff. And if you didn't read the Bible, that's wrong. But you, are you saying that, you know, if everybody read science fiction... Is but this-
0: I, think, but I think if you said uh, you can only read the Bible and you can only read Neuromancer, I think you would be um, you would be much worse off than if you were able to read widely.
1: I don't think I understand what you gentlemen mean, but you seem to understand each other. (laughs) In in making a mutually exclusive distinction between use and entertainment. No, I'm just... But Jesse
2: brought up, he said that as long as a book does have the use of science fiction, it doesn't matter if it's not well written because it makes him think. And I'm, and I'm saying that for many people... The making them think isn't, or not the making them think, but making them a better person, or it, it fulfills the function that science fiction should fill, fulfill, or something like that. And I'm just
0: yeah, I, I was, I was, uh, I'm not hundred percent back. I'm, I'm trying to get to a certain place though, and uh, and I want to give you my example. So, I've said this to many people for many years. The cold equations is a terrible story. It's very badly written, it's very hard to read, and it's very clunky. It's got weak characterization, it's, it's poor description, it's got a bad setup, but it fulfills an uh, archetypical role in telling me about a certain kind of science fiction that I really like. That is the kind that teaches me something about how to understand the world. When I look at this story and I think about what happens in it, I don't say, oh, you know, like a lot of people who apparently read this, they think, oh, the author just got it wrong. There is a way out. That's not the point. He set it up deliberately to get to where it goes. And because it plays by its own rules and it teaches you that lesson, which is a very hard lesson, that sometimes you're just fucked and you can't do anything about it. So, try and avoid being fucked. <laughs> you know, don't be stupid. That's what the lesson of that story is. And sometimes, you know, it's unavoidable. People get into terrible accidents. But I judge that as a great story, even though it is so badly written. And yet, I know there's a lot better writing, you know, with better characterization and maybe a better illusion and better metaphor, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't play that important role that science fiction does that I don't know that a lot of other stuff does. That is to teach me something in a constructed world that may be a mirror of our own or may be slightly different. In this case, I think, you know, it's got faster than light travel in it, but that's not the important part. The important part is there's a guy, he's got to get somewhere, he can't do it, if X is in the wrong place, X is in the wrong place, how do we solve this equation?
2: But isn't that, but can't we just tell the same story as the cold equation, if you just say we're on a ship and there's only enough food for three people and there's four people here that we're going to be here, there's only enough water crossing the desert for two people and there's three of us here, I mean isn't it just, that's the equation isn't
1: it? I I think not, I think not Um, I mean, no, but could you tell that same story? I I I want to disagree with each of you. You can't tell the same story. We've seen the stories that you're suggesting, Luke, and they all involve the possibility of cannibalism, uh, which is a very uh, charged uh, option and is impossible in the case of the cold equations because just having the food to live, just consuming the girl's stowaway so that the, the rescue... No, it's the, it's the fuel. The delivery ship isn't it? captain could survive. What? It's the
0: fuel. It's, it's the fuel, fuel is it?
1: It's the fuel. But that's my point. Is that? That's exactly my point. So oh, so I see what I mean. The yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so cold you're equations that, that is not the same as the other books. It's the only that's set of rules that works for that. Okay, but, yeah, it is the only set of equations. Rules. Is right. is However, the cold equations, I would also disagree with you, uh, Jesse. Um, I understand loads of weaknesses in the writing of that story, but not that it does not have powerful metaphors. The fact is that the stowaway, who just wants the chance to see her brother, metaphorically represents thoughtless love, absolutely unconditional love. And the the fuel supply metaphorically represents the physical limits of the world. And the cold equations says that it doesn't matter how much store we put in love. In fact, we have got to acknowledge that we live in a physical world. I don't think the, the story tells us just make sure you don't get fucked. I think the story tells us that this romantic ideal that we have, that love can conquer all or there's nothing as enduring as a mother's love or any of the other varieties of unconditional love, That They are not, in fact, the highest reality that human beings need to take account of. And that if they act that way, they are being foolish. And it seems to me that this is captured metaphorically by the story brilliantly.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if you remember, this story was written in the 40s. This is the story that the guys who are putting people in little capsules to go to the moon really need to be thinking about, rather than I mean, they got to do their equation, their you know, their calculations, their engineering courses. But if you're going to give them a book to read, you give them that, and you don't give them, uh, I don't know, a ghost story <laughs> because a ghost right. story will not give them this really important. And I mean, we
1: uh, exactly the way agree we with live. You. It today, is a useful story.
0: The way we live today, we live in a bubble of safeness. Our interactions with the world are the way Steve Jobs likes to interact or liked to interact with the world, right? He thought, my personality is strong enough to change the world. And he's right. You can manipulate the world around you to a massive degree if that world is full of minds. But if the world is full of things other than minds... rules. It will be unbending to your... You know, no matter how much I want my parachute to open, if I don't have a parachute in my backpack, it's not going to help me land, right? What I right.
1: think... And that And that, oh, the story gets brilliantly. Yes. And it does it because that girl's desire is pitiful and understandable. That That sister's desire to see her brother is the vehicle for all those other meanings. And the lack of fuel is the vehicle for all those other physical realities that we tend not to see because we live in what you're calling a bubble. In that sense, I think we've got to grant that Godwin has actually given us a metaphorically superb story.
0: I think, I think, I think that, that, that you're probably right. I don't think he was that competent. I've read some of his other stuff, and it doesn't strike me as really great. I think this is an accident. This wonderful story was an accident. because. Well, oh,
1: I don't mean that he gave it to – I never said he did not
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that
1: – yeah. Like people say smart things by accident all the time. How <laughs> many times How many times have you had somebody make a terrific pun and then you point it out to them and they go, oh, my God, I didn't know I said that? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah it's so great. That's so great. Uh, but but how, let's take it back to Apollo 13 then. Um, you've seen, you know the story. You've seen the movie and stuff like that. But <laughs> that, but Apollo, th- we got the same thing. Would 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 would? Uh, what was the commander's name? Some of us are old enough
1: to have lived through. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, was, I know. I just, I, I just visited
2: I, the NASA Space Center. and so all this kind of stuff in down in, in Florida. So, so it's all fresh in my mind. But I mean, that's that. I mean, so you saying if you want an astronaut to read that, but I think what you need to do is give it to the engineers and tell them, hey. Make sure there's enough. There's a bit of spare fuel. Oh no, sure no that, that's
0: spare. who I was thinking about. It has to be. You know, th- that's what you give to the engineers. Absolutely. Uh, okay,
2: not to the astronauts. You give that to the engineers. No, you
0: give them the poetry. Yeah, <laughs> because once they're up there, they're gonna do their uh, their uh, their readings, and and I think that's some of the most powerful stuff ever transmitted. You know, they yeah. to read from Genesis. That's amazing.
1: Uh, may I? Um... I, I, if, if, you, if it would not derail you, guys, I would like to offer uh, a, an additional theoretical uh, concept here about the way metaphor functions. Hey, it's your podcast. In general. Beg your pardon?
2: I said it's your podcast topic. You go for it.
1: Well, I, okay. Um, the cold equations, in a sense, is understandable. Um, once you understand what the word cold means in that word equations, and once you understand the implications of the word equations, is the title itself somehow uh, crystallizes all of those meanings that, that, Jesse, you're saying are useful, and I agree, um, in the story. So we've got this, this title That, after all, uh, I mean, equations aren't cold or hot or anything else, right? I mean, there's a a metaphor going on here, and understanding that metaphor gives us the heart of that novel. Again, heart is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, In all Romantic literature, um, we have the possibility of a central metaphor. Um, In Frankenstein, for example, I suggested earlier in this conversation that if we look at the words that are applied to the monster, and we recognize what that monster is. I mean, that monster is the central metaphor for for the novel. When we realize that that monster represents um, the excluded, um, powerful result of someone who does not connect himself with the community because his own aggrandizement is what he wants. That is, he's a doppelganger for Victor who actually shows all of those traits. Once we realize what the monster represents, we have an insight into the whole structure of the novel why it has different communities and all kinds of things. So it's a central metaphor. What I would like to offer is that, historically speaking, these metaphoric centers change through time. As we continue to be able to have metaphoric centers like cold equations in Godwin's story, but we may wind up moving toward what I would call ambivalent centers. Uh, For example, in the Scarlet Letter, that scene at the end when Dimmesdale opens his shirt, rips his shirt open, and some people see the letter A there, and some people think it means adulterer, and some people don't see it at all, and other people think they see the letter A reflected in the clouds in the sky. We don't actually know whether or not there's an A, or if any of those perceptions is correct. So that, that image is, which is the title image again, essentially, you know, a scarlet letter, um, that image is, am, excuse me, is ambiguous. Uh, so we have to figure out what its meanings are. And so in order to, to get an insight into the novel, we have to say, well, it could mean this, it could mean that. So what are the things that all of those meanings have in common? And what they have in common is their very ambiguity. And so, that gives us an insight into the novel again, really quick, by figuring out this the center. Now, I would say that in War with the Newts, the newts are the center. But I would call this a parametric center rather than a traditional kind of metaphor, because sometimes the newts are one thing, and sometimes the newts are another thing. And I can show you other kinds of parametric centers in other works. Now, if You ask, well, then how do we read this parametric center? We do it the same way we do it with the ambiguous centers. We say, of all of these different uses, what do they have in common? As the parameter changes its value, first the newts are are children, then the newts are labor, then the newts are slaves. What do they have in common? And if you look at all the different uses of the newts in the novel, what you see is they always are like human beings, but without individuality. And that notion that it's a human without individuality is, in fact, the central concept that is being played with in War with the Newts. How do we maintain a sense of individuality in the face of the onrush of fascism, in the face of totalitarian needs for national Uh, strength and so on. The book is written in 1936, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So what I'm suggesting is that in literature in general, but quite powerfully in fantasy and science fiction, not only can we have the traditional metaphor that's understandable in terms of the vehicle tenor, um, Uh, heuristic. I call it heuristic because it's not actually accurate, as I suggested in the beginning. But that we can understand in terms of the vehicle tenor heuristic, but we can take the process of metaphorization and understand how it works even when we have much more diverse uses of the thing that is the vehicle for those metaphors all the way up to these parametric metaphors, these parametric centers for a novel. And science fiction does that brilliantly.
2: But do you think, again, I mean, I, I don't want to go back to sort of what the author's putting in there and what the reader is getting out of it that the author might not have put in there, but, like, what level are we talking about here? Is this something that an author will do, or is this something I, that only you can get from later reading? I, I'm not sure oh, what, I think, what level I, you're taking of this.
1: I think, it, we you know, it would depend upon looking at the individual work, Luke, but it seems to me that um, when an author titles a book, War with the Newts, Mm. And he presents in the novel documents in which people are commenting on the results of their studies of Newt's, as in the, you know, premier congrès du right? I mean, whether or not he understands consciously everything that a reader might pick out of it consciously, I can't say. But that he is doing it consciously in some sense seems mm. to me undeniable, right? I mean, yeah. take a look, give a parallel example in, uh, in The Great Gatsby. Um, the word car, or some equivalent to it, like railroad car or taxi cab, um, occurs on one out of three pages in the novel. One out of three pages. And it turns out that Myrtle Wilson, who gets killed by a car, um, driven by, uh, Gatsby, uh, Myrtle Wilson, um, gets, uh, sorry, by by Daisy Buchanan, Um, Myrtle Wilson likes to be in taxi cabs. She somehow likes the economic clarity of that. But Nick Carraway, our main (laughs) narrator, um, although we are told that he buys the car when he moves to West Egg, and he sells it again just before he leaves at the end of the novel, we never see his car again in the novel. He always likes to, mooch rides from somebody else we know that Gatsby sends the station wagon to pick up guests for his parties who come out on the railroad But the fancier, higher-class guests, he sends a limousine into Manhattan to pick them up. And if you take a look at the famous image of the the Valley of Ashes, where the Long Island Railroad runs through under the big billboard of the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg, the optometrist who's looking down on this ruined, burnt-out land of railroads, what you see is the fundamental notion of being alienated from your community— is captured by cars. The book begins with cars. He's on his way to the east, and it ends with him on the railroad going away, and the very last paragraph switches to those sailors in the boats paddling against the current, you know, the the original Dutch sailors who first came into New York Harbor. Um, The alienation that the car represents in the 1920s when this book comes out is the parametric center for The Great Gatsby. And you can suggest, anyone could suggest, I'm not speaking of you in particular, that Fitzgerald didn't think that through the way I'm now explaining it.
2: But it was there. Yeah. But,
1: but you know, I mean, the plot, the the, the economic setting, the description, I mean, it's it's all through it. It had to have been resonant in his mind whether he was aware of it or not. And I'm suggesting that this kind of a parametric center is a much more complicated development over the simple metaphoric center that we see in, say, the monster in Frankenstein. But we get these. It's an historical development where we get new possibilities for these centers. And the parametric center is really extraordinary in fantasy and science fiction because we can t- create something that doesn't exist in the real world. Unlike the car, these five-foot-tall newts are something that Chopik just decides to have. You know, Wells just decides to have Martians. And those Martians, at some point, are thought of as vampires. You know, and then that works having to do with, you know, what it means to... Uh, to live on people because you live by your mind alone. At other points we're told that they're telepathic and we understand what it means to dis to remove the body from the ways in which people communicate with each other. We see that they are utterly warlike which tells us something about the lack of communication and what that does. I mean, the Martians function in many different ways, but collectively what we know about them is they are the endpoint of an evolution that has affected only the mind and let the body wither away. And Once we understand that one common feature of it, all of the different uses of them fall into place and we get an insight into the novel as a whole. Science fiction does this, and I think it, it has more power to do it than realistic fiction because an author, even if he or she is not consciously aware of the, the power of the image that he has or she has used to, to, to ground and center the work, when they get that, that image, man, they can take off from it, and that becomes very exciting to the reader
0: so uh, i i, I we've got to end this soon because i've got to go to work, but i wanted to um <laughs> I wanted to think you know I was thinking about what luke Luke, i said to Luke about uh you give it to the astronauts you you give it to the engineers uh, don't give it to the astronauts well, actually, you should give it to the astronauts and the engineers <laughs> and the reason uh you guys remember the Apollo one disaster, you know about that yeah okay yeah so- the, ox-
2: the aluminium in the cockpit burnt up in the oxygen. And- yeah, the,
0: they filled the, the cockpit with all sorts of flammable things. Um, uh, mostly, um, uh, what's that stuff you can use to connect things? Uh, shoes, if you don't like laces. What's that stuff called? What? Velcro. 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 It's, it was full of Velcro. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, because they're going to be in outer space. But I say it was full they, of pure
2: oxygen, the, so even the aluminium. Pure
0: oxygen. Yeah, burnt as well. Uh, 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 pure oxygen, Velcro, which is made of carbon, um, and... A, Spark and they have a fire that almost kills them instant, you know, very, very quickly. They died. Um, when they come to make the determination, it's like 1968 or so, they say, What really happened? Well, we think this happened, we think this happened. And so, why did this happen? Uh, it was a failure of imagination. That was their, their exactly the takeaway, right. They failed to imagine this scenario, and yet. To us, looking back at it, oh yeah, you don't fill a cockpit full of pure oxygen and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know burnable items, and then make the door so that it can't be opened from the outside. It has to be opened from the inside, right? They they couldn't escape because they had the pressure built up from the smoke. The door was unopenable, so. If, I mean, we can't, the, the thing is that we can't foresee all of the futures, right? We have to learn from the past. But there is a way of making ourselves smarter. And I think that this is a value that you get from science fiction that you maybe don't get from, I mean, The, the Great Gatsby, I hear it's a great book, but I don't know that it will teach me about how to survive. <laughs> it might make me better uh, you know, better suited to have a dinner party conversation, but it might not make me uh, better able to survive a dangerous uh, physical universe. It might be good at a, a at a party with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. So you're Gates.
2: saying that the metaphor isn't even metaphor anymore; it's actually a real, literal I, lesson.
0: I think that that might be what I'm saying. Yeah.